It is Palm Sunday, but I would like to move ahead in the Passion narrative to Gethsemane. I would ask, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to the 26th chapter of Matthew. We will begin reading at verse 36. Matthew 26, 36 and following. Let's pray. Our Father, before we read your word, we know that we are entering into a text that, though glorious and wondrous, is the vestibule, the entrance into the hell of Christ's sufferings. So help us to meditate carefully, definitely, upon the sufferings of the Savior on our behalf. And may our hearts, in faith, trust him alone for redemption and be well prepared for Easter Sunday morning. And for those among us who are lost, may they see, even today, that Christ is the only Savior of sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 26, beginning with verse 36. This is the Word of God. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, there are many ways in which we could look at this text. We could focus, for example, on the disciples. Where were they when the very human Christ needed their presence and comfort? We could focus on the theme of prayer. We could focus together on the theme of temptation. 
But I think what is best is that we meditate quietly together for our soul's good on the agony of Gethsemane, which is, after all, the primary purpose of the text. Now let us remember that Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and he is fully man. The two natures united in one person. God assumed human nature. God in his incarnation became man without ceasing to be God. He had real human emotions, though without sin. He was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Not one time do the gospel writers record that Jesus laughed. The Savior came on a mission from the Father's throne to give his life a ransom for many, but that mission was no cold, calculated, easily done thing. The gospel writers tell us that as he moved toward Calvary, his soul was exceeding sorrowful even unto death. So we move to the text, and the first thing we note is Jesus' agonizing prayer. Jesus' agonizing prayer. Matthew tells us what happened. In the context of the plot to kill Jesus and having held the Passover with his disciples, having instituted the Lord's Supper, and having foretold Peter's denial, Jesus goes to Gethsemane and he prays. Of the disciples, he takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, farther from the others, wanting them to watch with him as he enters into sorrowful prayer. Jesus goes yet a little farther and he prays to his father that the cup should it be God's will, would pass from him. He came to his disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus went deeper into the woods and prayed for the cup. Should it be the Father's will to pass? Again, he came and found his disciples sleeping. He left them and went away praying the same words a third time, showing that his soul is burdened with this great theme. And then he came and found his disciples just as Judas was leading the cohort of soldiers sent to arrest him and bring him to the cross. This is the context of Jesus' agonizing prayer. Gethsemane, you probably know, means oil press. But in Gethsemane, Jesus himself is being put into the press of the wrath of God. Matthew might intend for us to see significance in the fact that Jesus prays in a garden. In the garden, Adam said, in essence, my will, not yours. But here, Jesus, the last Adam, prays, Not my will, but yours. And so he exhorts his disciples to pray, taking Peter and James and John, and begins his agonizing prayer. And is this not what we most see? Agony, utter agony. The emotional stress of the Lord is overwhelming as we read the text. Notice how Jesus describes his own sorrow in verse 37. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Two verbs here. The first verb, lupeo, means pain. It means grief. The second, admoneo, indicates extreme mental distress. In verse 38, 
we might translate grief upon grief because it uses that word lupos that means pain, that means grief, with the preposition peri. Grief upon grief he experiences in Gethsemane. In Luke twenty two forty four, we are told he was in agony. In Mark fourteen thirty three, that he was very distressed. The commentator Cranfield says on the passage in Mark, being in the grip of a shuddering horror in the face of the dreadful prospect before him. That's it. Shuddering horror is what he faced in Gethsemane. The horror faced by the Savior was unbounded. Luke tells us that an angel was sent to strengthen him and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Calvin, such deadly sweat could only have flowed from a dire and unusual horror. And those who write upon Gethsemane, who dwell upon it, continually come up with this word horror, and rightly so. His entire body shows the bottomless distress of his soul as he bends the knee, sweats, as it were, great drops of blood in agony in Gethsemane. Agonizing prayer, that's what we see. And moving on, secondly, let's ask a question. Why did our Savior agonize in prayer here in Gethsemane? Well, remember... He is a true human being, a real body and a real soul, a genuine human being, God and man, two natures perfectly united in one person. Did he agonize because of the physical sufferings that he would endure? Well, of course, that should never be minimized. We should never minimize the physical sufferings of the Savior as he moves on to the cross and eventually is placed there. William Temple said that Jesus' wounds are his credentials to the suffering race of human beings. Are you suffering? Does God seem distant from you? God's own son suffered, yet he would rise from the dead and believers, so shall you. But two reasons in addition to physical suffering, and I think more to the core of the issue, need always to be pointed out when we think of Gethsemane. Why did our Savior agonize in prayer here in Gethsemane? I think the first and the most important reason is that Jesus knew his feelings of overwhelmingness would intensify on the cross as he cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Notice that in verses 39 and 42 he prays, My Father, and that is very significant. For in drinking the cup, Jesus lost his sense of intimacy with the Father. He was forsaken that you who now believe in him would never be forsaken. But there's another reason that I think is even more to the core of it. Jesus is overwhelmed because he is utterly, infinitely holy. And because we are sinners, we can scarcely know what that means. Jesus' soul is filled with revulsion as he ponders what it will mean to bear my sin on the cross. That is what the cross is all about, sin-bearing. Jesus is stepping into the vestibule of full exposure 
to the wrath of God. As we read in verse 31 of this chapter, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. God the Father struck the shepherd. The sword of justice must come down upon the Son in our place. Now think of this. When you look to God through faith in Christ, what do you find? You find a gracious God. When you look to God through Jesus Christ, you find the Father smiling upon you. But God the Son, as He bore the wrath of God, saw no gracious God toward Him. His death satisfies God's wrath toward us, but only because upon Him the wrath of God was poured out in full as our substitute can we know a gracious God. We are covered from wrath because for Him there was no covering from wrath. We are blessed because He was cursed. And that is what God thought of His Son on the cross, and that is why Gethsemane is overwhelming to our Lord, because on the cross, as He moves toward the cross, Christ knew that He would be sin itself in the Father's eyes. Paul tells us He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. As He hung upon the cross, He was sin itself in the eyes of of the Father, the Holy Son of God, God Himself, the second person of the Trinity who assumed human nature, would be in the Father's eyes sin itself. Thirdly, let's ask another question. What does the prayer for the cup to pass mean? You see that He prays it. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And essentially three times with similar words he prays this prayer. What does it mean? There have been many views on Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Some say he's not praying for deliverance from the cross, but from the agony of Gethsemane and from the depression of Gethsemane. Even my friend Charles Spurgeon holds to that view. We rarely differ from one another, but we do today. Some say he's praying against premature death in Gethsemane. Others say he's praying that his suffering will not be prolonged to eternity. These just won't do. He was praying. Jesus in Gethsemane was praying in all of the agony of his true human soul about the cross. He is moving toward the cross. If it be morally possible, consistent with your nature and your plan, let this cup pass from me. Do not misunderstand the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. It was all along a prayer of trust. But he faces the cross and it is abhorrent to him that his holy body and soul would bear sin. He feels the cost of sacrifice. He feels the cost of being the sinless substitute bearing the sins of sinners. The cup, what does Jesus mean by the cup? The cup is Old Testament language for the pouring out of God's wrath. It is a symbol of God's wrath. A few examples. Turn with me to the 75th Psalm.
verses 7 to 8. Psalm 75, 7 to 8. Notice the symbolism of the cup. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. Nineteen and following. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastating, devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope and a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine... Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, Bow down, that we may pass over. A very profound example. Jeremiah chapter 25. And how I remember my Old Testament professor Raymond Dillard opening this text. Jeremiah 25, let's read verses 15 and 16 and then we'll jump down to verse 27. I hope that you'll read it on your own. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Now in verse 27. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending against you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, and you shall go unpunished. You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. Now this passage in Jeremiah 25, he had been preaching for over 20 years. It's now 604 BC, momentous events have happened in the ancient Near East and the Assyrian Empire was falling apart. The Battle of Carchemish has taken place and this means that there is no one to stop Nebuchadnezzar from entering in. This is that time frame when, when Daniel is taken to Babylon. And in this context, Jeremiah passes the cup as a prophet of the Lord representatively to the nations. Imagine you're in the crowd, and there's the prophet. And he takes the cup in his hand, and he says, This is the cup of the wrath of Almighty God. 
It will make you reel and it will make you stagger. It will make you drunk with his wrath. And he holds it out to this person and that as a representative of the nation. And he says, here, you take it. You drink it. Here, you take this cup. You drink it down. Here, you take it. You drink it to the very dregs. What would you have done? You would have said, I will take it. I'll not drink that cup. I'll not drink it. He says to the nations, you must drink it. You have no choice but to drink it. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Would you have taken the cup? Why does Jesus pray, take this cup from me? Because it is the the cup of the wrath of Almighty God. And Jesus drinks the cup. He does take the cup from his Father's hand. Jonathan Edwards said in Gethsemane, he then had a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. For what was the human nature of Christ to such a mighty wrath as this? It was in itself, without the supports of God, but a feeble worm of dust. So Jesus prays. In all of the fullness of his sinless but real humanity, he is overwhelmed with the thought of the wrath of God and what it means to bear it. And so the cup, it's an awful image. Don't you agree? It is an awful image. What makes the cup so awful? You say, what makes it awful is that it's the wrath of God. True, but what makes the image so awful to Jesus is that Psalm 75 tell us the wicked drink the cup. Klaus Schilder, the Dutch theologian from whom I quote occasionally, says one would need to have been in hell for some time in order to understand what it is that is tearing Jesus apart in the garden. The awfulness of his situation is that God recedes from him. Any attempt to understand the meaning of Gethsemane is sacrilege and folly unless it discovers the explanation in Almighty God. I think Schilder is almost right. But I think he misses something. When he says you would need to have been in hell for some time in order to understand what Jesus endured, you would have been in hell for an eternity and you still would never have understood it. None of us would because only Jesus is the holy, sinless Son of God who drank down the cup of the wrath of Almighty God. So what does this prayer, fourthly, what does this prayer mean for our redemption? Well, let me remind you, this prayer was a prayer of resignation, not my will but thine be done. Lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I come to do thy will, O God. He came to fulfill the will of his Father, For those of us who had opposed his will, he came to obey the law that we broke. 
But his holy soul could not but shrink from the wrath of God. His holy soul could not help but submit to the will of God. So the conclusion? The cross was unavoidable if the Father was to be obeyed. The cross was unavoidable if God was to be glorified. The cross was unavoidable if you and I were to be saved. That Jesus went to the cross was a necessity or we would be lost. Now let me give you seven truths to reflect on as we think of Gethsemane. First, how awful sin must be that it requires the holy and sinless Son of God to pay the price. Secondly, how awful the wrath of God must be. The punishment must be commensurate with the gravity of sin, and that is why it requires the second person of the Trinity, God himself, assuming human nature, to pay the price of sin. But you know, sinners in hell will experience the wrath of God differently than did Jesus. Because Jesus did not feel the gnawing of a guilty conscience. He felt no torment of inward lust and corruption. God never hated his person. Christ did not suffer despair. Christ's sufferings were infinitely worthy to pay the price for eternity, but he did not suffer for eternity. But sinners, apart from Christ, will know those things. If you could but sense the danger you were in, if you were not trusting Christ, if you could but sense the danger that you were in, you would fall in bloody sweat and cry out in amazement. Thirdly, how dreadful were Christ's sufferings. Because this is not a martyr's death. It is not even only a display of the love of God. It is that, but it's so much more. It's the sacrifice, the sinless substitute bearing our sins and the wrath of God. How dreadful were Christ's sufferings, full revulsion towards sin, yet he bears it. Fourthly, how great is the love of Christ for sinners, that he would take down the wrath of God in gulps, bearing the fierceness of the wrath of God for the love he had for us, in view of sin and its stark rebellion, and even knowing his own disciples' ingratitude, yet he loved. How great is his love, so that there was not one sip of the wrath of God remaining in the cup. Fifthly, how willing is Christ to receive sinners? Here is the assurance that the Lord receives every sinner who comes to him by faith. Is that you? Sixth, Christ's obedience to the Father is a marvel to behold. It is through his obedience to the law and his paying the price demanded because we have broken the law that we are saved. Again, Jonathan Edwards. He was the most wonderful instance of submission to God's sovereignty that ever was. 
If God lays His hand upon us in some acute pain of body, how ready are we to be discontented and impatient. When the innocent Son of God, who deserved no suffering, could quietly submit to sufferings inconceivably great and say it over and over, God's will be done. And people, had He failed, all would have failed and we all would be lost. He could not fail. He did not fail. But had he failed, had he not drunk the cup, every one of us would be lost. Seven, believer, here is good news for you. God will not pour out his wrath upon you because he has poured it out on his own son, our last Adam, our great high priest in your place. The judicial wrath of God against believers is spent. Period. No wrath for a true believer in Christ. Mr. Spurgeon said, How loathsome I am in the sight of God. I feel myself only fit to be cast into the lowest hell. And I wonder that God has not long ago cast me there, but I go to Gethsemane and I peer under the gnarled olive trees and I see my Savior. Yes, I see him wallowing on the ground in anguish and hear such groans come from him as never came from human breasts before. I look upon the earth and see it red with his blood while his face is smeared with gory sweat. And I say to myself, my God, my Savior, what aileth thee? I hear him reply, I am suffering for thy sin. And then I take comfort. For while I fain would have spared my Lord such anguish, now that the anguish is over, I can understand how Jehovah can spare me because he smote his son in my stead. I said seven things. Let me add an eighth. Does not the suffering of the Son of God put your suffering and mine into perspective? I'm not minimizing your suffering. But I I don't only mean that our suffering has meaning based on the paradigm of the cross, which it does, but I mean this. Sometimes I hear Christians go through suffering, and I, I hear them in the depth of their trial say, this is my Gethsemane. I shudder, I cringe when I hear that. Only one has gone through Gethsemane. And you will never, never go through Gethsemane. And whatever you suffer, you will never suffer what the Holy Son of God suffered for you in your place. No matter how great your sufferings are. Yes, his sufferings are in a sense drawn in our Christian souls, but we will never bear the wrath of God. And this puts my suffering into glorious perspective. Doesn't it? Which leads me to conclude, fifthly, the last thing. Jesus suffered alone. He suffered alone. 
His sufferings were real and unique and vicarious. Children, that means in your place, your substitute. My undergraduate work, I had to read Rudolf Bultmann, German New Testament critic. And I've continued from time to time to dip into Bultmann. And in Der Spiegel, in an interview, he is quoted as saying this. I'm quoting Bultmann. If the Christ who died such a death was the pre-existent Son of God, what could death mean for him? Obviously very little if he knew that he would rise in three days. And of course, Bultmann believes he's still in a grave. Of course, Bultmann knows better now because he's dead. <laughs> but Bultmann and his ilk have a total misapprehension of the issue. Here in Gethsemane, we see the holy soul of the Son of God knowing that he is about to bear our hell. Which is what the creed means when we say he descended into hell. He bears the hell of our sufferings. The mystery of the sufferings of the Son of God, the depth, the reality of substitution, knowledge of the resurrection, and he knew he would be raised, but knowledge of the resurrection does not mean that the Son's apprehension of the reality of wrath bearing the cross would be a walk in the park. How miserable is the unbelieving view of Christ? He, as we move on in the Passion narrative, we see that He will bear the wrath of God, the Son, our Savior, and no other. The two thieves are on crosses needing to be saved. In verses 45 and 46... Then he came to the disciples and said to them, tell me if these are not some of the most lonely verses you've ever read. Have you ever thought of them like that? He came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Sleep later. Too late to join me in prayer now. Perhaps he even at this moment sees the torches coming up through the Kidron Valley, led by Judas Iscariot. And what most impresses me is that none can do what only he can do. Do you hear me? You can't save yourself. No work of yours will save you. None can do what only he can do. Soon he will be on the cross of shame, ransoming our souls from sin. In the very next chapter, he will be shrouded in complete, thick, mysterious darkness. We cannot imagine what he alone endured. Jesus will go on. He will go on to the cross, and he will go on alone. 